0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal maker's DNA. Welcome back everyone to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, excited about this one. it have got a, a fellow by the name of Rob Ladan. Rob works in an area that I know nothing about. Rob founded Ladan Partners in 2009, which merged with foventus in 2016, uh, recently acquired Canadian Power Engineers. And foventus is in the renewable power game and uh, is an engineering firm. And, and that's why I say that I know very little about the renewable space, but looking forward to learning more. Rob has more than 30 years of leadership experience, and he is uh well known for his experience uh, advising clients on complex te- technical commercial issues confronting distributed energy and energy storage projects globally uh, recipient of multiple awards and nominations for innovation and design and is a published author of various thought leadership articles and a frequent uh, speaker and lecturer so rob thank you very much for joining me no thanks for having me yeah absolutely I and mean, this is the first time we're meeting which is uh, which is always fun for me because uh you know, I never really know where to take these conversations, uh, and I'm always fascinated to see where it goes. But I kind of always start these uh, these discussions the same way, and you know, I'm I'm really interested in the story behind the person because I find that that story is sometimes more interesting than the story behind the business. So, if if you wouldn't mind, just giving me a bit of a uh, an overview of of you know what your childhood looked like and how you got kind of got to this point. You know, I know you mentioned that you jumped around Ontario a lot, but uh, that's uh, that's all I got on the five minutes that we had before this. Sure, sure. I'd be happy
1: to do so. It's a little bit non-standard, or a bit. Um, perhaps everybody's story is a little bit unique. Mine, I think, is is kind of uh, unusual. So I'll go um, start back with um, my experience in, where I come from. I grew up in uh, Keswick. I think that's where I've been the formative years of my life, that small town north of Newmarket very rural at that time we had one stop light and no mcdonald's so that tells you you know about that's the size rural. of it and, and yeah. the uh, the number one attraction was uh, going uh, public skating on saturday night so that's where i grew up uh, went to high school in sutton and and had my experience of youth there but after um leaving um school i went off and i um I, I decided that i wanted to be a tradesperson uh and so particularly i wanted to work in machining and tool making and these types of things and so after a period of time, I, I found myself in a community college in, uh, in Ontario, in Toronto particularly, called George Brown, George Brown College. And I studied um, mechanical engineering uh, technology there, particularly um, with a, a focus on computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacturing and a variety of other um, uh, engineering uh, technologies that were available in 1985 when I took it. And so it was very much at the formative time of, of the development of that type of technology. And so.
0: And why, why did you decide when that? That was very early, right? Like what was it that drew you to the computer side as opposed to the, the, the you know, the using your hands trade side? Yeah. So I was fascinated by uh, the computer, by computer technology as
1: a kid. My, uh, my, my family's, uh, we had a, um, a Commodore PET. I think that's what it was called. And uh, a small computer, and uh, I, I found it fascinating. And and so when going and looking at what I wanted to do from a trade standpoint, I realized I didn't I didn't want to be purely applied a, a ticketed tradesperson, but I wanted to do something in that area. I didn't I didn't I wanted to have it. I wanted something that was in between that and just applied engineering discipline. And so when I saw the opportunity to do that uh, course, uh, I, I, I I took it and. Um, and it was sort of a life-altering because, you know, once you make those decisions, they they affect the rest of your life uh, from an educational standpoint. You know, there's that and, and, you know, the the people that you meet as you go through the journey, right? I mean, this all has a big effect. I'm a, I'm a big believer that uh, there's probably about 100 people that you'll meet or know in your life that will determine what happens to you. And how you treat them is just about the only, you know, the sole determination of, of how your life will turn out. And that's what I've how I've how I've proceeded, and and so I still know people from when I went to college, and still um, interact with them, and that's it's you know led to a, a lifelong relationship where you know people help each other. So I think it's really important not just what you do at the beginning, but how you treat the people around you at the beginning, and those those relationships that you make. But in any case, I went from there. Uh, I went to work in the um, in the automotive sector. The automotive sector in the uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s was uh, going through a um, Renaissance in Ontario because of the decline of the uh, Canadian dollar. You know, at 63 cents, uh, that type of thing. Well, that caused a boom in manufacturing in the um, in the automotive sector in Ontario. In Ontario, political leanings and everything else about the province uh, really uh, really pushed that, and so you saw a large uh, a large expansion of that sector. I eventually ended up working for a company called Magn International. Uh, in 1996, where um, through a variety of roles and projects and, I could I say, opportunities over the next 10 years, I became the director of engineering for the Tacoma Operatings at Trimco Group, eventually. And I really feel like Magna uh, set um, the second part of my education, it established the second part of my education. Uh, Magna was a company where nobody cared what you looked like, they cared what you could do, and that's how I felt. It Very much so. You can do it or you cannot. I remember the the story is you can be the general manager, you get the office right next to the front door, not because it's most convenient for you, it's so that it's the shortest walk if you have to leave. And so that was, you know, the the way the Magna operated and very, very focused upon the the people that work there and upon their contribution. And uh, I think I I learned uh, a lot of what I consider to be my my um, moral business lessons from working at Magna.
0: I just want to take a step back for a second I mean one of the things that's interesting is I don't meet a lot of entrepreneurs that say they you know they, they, they realize very early on they want to be a tradesperson Tell me about you know like what influenced that like were, were your parents uh, you know in the trades like was it small town that kind of led to that because it's a, it's not a common thing I hear. First
1: time I've heard. Yeah. So where I grew up, the uh, the high school that I went to had a combined occupational and academic stream to it. So it had an extensive shop area. Shop was a very very big part of that school. I mean, I'm a, I'm a qualified welder. I mean, I, I can I have and, and and can do welding as a as a profession if I wanted to. And so um and I learned all of those skills in um in school. I sheet metal and. Sheet metal, electrical shops, um, machine shops, you know, complex machining centers. Uh, it was very, very sophisticated relative to what you see in high schools today. And so um that's really I was just fascinated by the technology.
0: Well, I mean, when 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 I did shop, I uh, I, I traded an A in shop for getting my teacher a sandwich in the morning every morning. Yeah. So I did absolutely yeah. nothing. And uh, I, I proudly say that I cannot ha- I cannot hang a painting in my house.
1: Yes, yes. No, it's <laughs> a it's a you, know, you made some candlesticks in woodshop, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, no. I um uh, we were we were machining. Uh, we were running um, um you know high speed uh, multi axis machining centers. And so um, I still have things that I built and uh, at that time. And so, and so I was fascinated by that. I love making things. You know, seeing the physical object appear is a lot different than um uh, you know providing a uh, you know. Uh, doing something that's purely academic, and so I, I really like that, and um, and it's sort of, um, you know, I'm a high-energy person, and that absorbs some of that energy. So that's how I ended up doing that, and um, and how I ended up, you know, pursuing that further in my education. And so, so that's why, when arriving at Magna, which was founded by a toolmaker, being someone who was a hands-on, uh, coming from a toolmaking technology background, was welcomed. Into the organization, and there was no bias. Nobody asked me where my MBA was, okay. And it's not to say having an MBA is a bad idea, but nobody asked where it was because nobody cared. They said, "Oh, can you, uh, can you, do you know how to file down this, this side of this prog die? Uh, yeah, I could do that if I had to. Okay, you're hired. You know that was a, uh, you know that was um, the introduction. So, um, so that's um, I went through um, magna, and I went through their They had a management training course there that they did with uh, Schulich. Right in combination with Schulich, and they taught us things that um, we wouldn't normally learn in college, from a corporate finance standpoint, from a corporate accounting standpoint, from all the things that you needed to do to help run a division. And uh, I did that for two years uh, in uh, at Magna, and then I went on from Magna after 2008, uh, 2006, 2008, when the automotive industry uh, it tanked. You may recall, you may recall. uh, uh, that. Well, there was a side effect of that is that they basically red circled 50% of the, uh, of the, you know, of the senior management in these, these automotive manufacturing companies and sent them home. I, there's a famous story of, of, uh, of uh, at one point in one magnet division them not being able to make up their minds, so the uh, VP just uh, took every other, you know, line off of the uh, internal phone list, you know, this type of thing because it was an area. I mean, it, the automotive industry had stopped, it ground to a halt. And so if we think that Omicron or anything else was bad, I I invite you to go back to the days that that General Motors went bankrupt in Ontario. You think about stuff that's economically destabilizing. But in any case, um, that was um, my um, point at which I left the automotive industry from the standpoint of working for a manufacturer. And I went out and I started my own consulting business. And my consulting business was, well, I know how to solve problems because here's my experience. Right inside a magnet, I started that and uh, and called it Lydan Partners. And I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my own thing here because I was a little bit jaded after having spent a long time building a career that, um, you know, you just take the the, the rug gets pulled right out from underneath you for all intents and purposes. And um, I said, look, I'd like to take a little bit more control of my own destiny, which I think is the fault of most entrepreneurs. You know, we desire self-determination and uh, self-determination is wealth doesn't matter how much money you make, it's how much you get to control your own time. So I did that and from there went around doing um, consulting projects for um, small manufacturers in Ontario, did that for a couple of years. And then a colleague of mine um, asked me to come and do a uh, assignment for a company called Hatch Engineering. Uh, and it was about doing a business plan for, um, uh, for solar um, consulting, uh, solar design engineering. Uh, which they had no familiarity with. I had no familiarity with, so we were on equal playing ground, um, equal level, uh, level playing ground. And so I did that in uh, 2009, 2010. And uh, I said, um, you know, you probably don't want to be in this business because uh, this was the emergence of the Green Energy Act in Ontario. And they were like, how, you know, are we going to design solar panels? What are we going to do here? How are we going to take advantage of this? How are we going to be a part of this? And, and well, look, at guys, you're in the mining sector and Hatch is uh, primarily a mining-oriented uh, company. Uh, they have a uh, renewable power division that was primarily in the hydro area, but, um, but basically that's what the company was at that time. It was very much a mining-oriented. And so I did the study, I gave them the study. I said, where do I pick up my check? And they said, you know, hang on a minute, we really liked your study. Why don't you come here and run our solar group for us? And I said, well, okay, um, I just told you that wouldn't be a great idea. So uh, the bar is very low. <laughs> I feel like I can't really fail at something I just told you not to do. So, but the fact that I said it won't work is what made it interesting. And so I went to work uh, for Hatch uh, in 2010 and um, rose up through that ranks of that organization to be uh, the uh, global director for the renewable power uh, group there in twenties by 2016, 2015, 2016. Which is everything but the hydro group. So renewable power. Just so you know, it, depending upon who you talk to, renewable power means wind and solar, and hydro tends to differentiate itself and say this is the hydro business and not the renewable power business. But and that was the same differentiation inside of Hatch. Hydro was separate from wind and solar, what was ostensibly renewable power. So did that, and then um, you know I think uh, history repeats. Uh, the mining sector uh, post um, the end of quantitative easing, mining sector tanks. Right. So, what happens is companies like Hatch or others that are deeply, deeply invested in the mining business start shedding staff. And I realized that, you know, my 75 or 80,000 hours a year that my group was doing didn't matter. Didn't matter. Didn't matter in an eight, 9,000 person company. So, I said, you know what? I need to go back to doing what I was doing because we were successful and the success ruined it for me in a way. You know, been there, done that. You know, it's not going to go anywhere from here. So, went off and uh, founded um, Foventus and uh, amalgamated it with the uh, Ladan partners uh, my previous uh, my was still active corporation at that time and uh, said look at them I'm going to take everything that I learned from everywhere I worked and I'm going to apply it to the renewable power business and on top of that I'm going to make the uh, cardinal sin error of uh, all startup businesses. I'm going to not have a strong home market. And so in the founding of Oventus, I made a very specific uh, intentional decision to not pursue work in Canada. And I know this sounds a little bit unusual because the first rule is uh, have a strong home market, but I was not prepared to go from working in in an organization of any form where my future was determined for me to working in an environment where it was determined from a political standpoint. I was not interested in the politics of renewable power in Ontario in 2016. And so uh, we cast our eyes south and focused all of our efforts upon our US, uh, US business. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge because for um, US companies um, whom are uh, arguably much easier to deal with than Canadian companies in many ways, but they view Canada as not someplace the technology comes from.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's changing a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's getting better, but you know, if, if, if our address had been somewhere in Germany or Spain, they would have found us exotic and interesting. That when we say we're from Toronto and they're like, oh, you know, that's sort of the answer. Oh, and so, um, but in any case, we did uh, go out and we started to do that business development effort. And um, over the years, we uh, slowly, through quality of our work and um, the honesty of our efforts with our client, built up a reputation with them. And that went along for a couple of years. And I think that, you know, as I said to you earlier, I've never had so much fun making so little money starting a company because... You know, you've got to understand. You know, working capital is, is is required to maintain receivables and pay salaries and these types of things, which is the big challenge in consulting, right? Payday comes every two weeks, but uh, uh, checks don't show up every two weeks, right? So there's nowhere to push the uh, the the there's nowhere to push the uh, the um, the requirement for working capital. So in any case, we did that and we remained conservative and we stuck to our knitting and we let the clients tell us what they wanted. Um, It's a good idea to have a directionally correct vision of where you're going. Anybody thinks that they know what's gonna happen next, they're sorely mistaken. You must be open to opportunity and you have to watch for the signals and the signals are clear and you need to not, you know, not to filter out the signals from the market because you have some bias of what you want people to want. You've got to accept that what they want is is what they want, even if you don't agree with them, and you just move on,
0: right? So, so you you had mentioned when you left Magna that you were jaded. You know, I want I want to talk about that because you know I'm a, I'm a big believer that that the power of the chip on the shoulder is a real is a real one. You know, I've used it in my life, and I think it's it's a useful one. And people somehow think it's negative, but I think that sometimes that negative energy can can feed an entrepreneur. What was your uh, you know, feeling at the time and, and how and how much did that help or hurt you as you embarked on kind of going out on your own?
1: Yeah, a lot. Um, I think that you realize I think, yeah, anger is a big part of becoming an entrepreneur, I think, it's a critical factor. I mean, you have to you have to have some passion or else you shouldn't do it. Here's the thing is that businesses, as you get to a more senior level, become somewhat tribal in, in their, their, their format. There's somebody who is your mentor and somebody whom are you are mentoring, and there is a, there's a chain there, connection, right? And um, often in larger companies, um, there can be competing tribes, let's put it that way, okay? Somebody, you know, this, is, this uh, cohort, that cohort, they work together, they know each other. You know, it's one of the reasons that I often told people, never, you know, go on an assignment for more than two years or everybody forget who you are, right? You know, the truth of the matter is that those relationships matter, and you don't really understand when you're younger how much they matter. And if you invest 10 years and your tribe gets killed off, you're done. It doesn't matter what you did. That wasn't your group. That wasn't your cohort. Your mentor gets sacked. Your tribe is gone. You're done. You have a choice to make that. Start again, okay? Start again showing everybody everything that you already learned so that they believe that you know or move on. And that's that chip. That's that jaded part of it, right? You know, once you come to know, you know, it's like when you're younger, you change companies because you get to, you know, talk about the great things you did and nobody knows about any of the bad things you did and you can move on and move forward. But as you get into more and more senior levels of management in a company, um, either you've got the, um, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a pyramid, right? Gets skinnier at the top, right? And so not everybody fits. And so you can decide to take a back seat and just coast for the rest of your career, or you can decide to start again. And I, I decided to start again, you know, I could have taken some role and done something, but I didn't want to.
0: So Rob, you had mentioned right at the beginning of this discussion, this idea of what I'm going to call a network effect, right now you have 100 people that you cross in your life that can influence your life, and you say it's all about how you treat them. What do you think people get right? And what do you think people get wrong about A, the understanding of it isn't everyone that you meet? Because I agree with you. It is a limited, you know, sub, subsection of people that actually influence the outcome of your life. And what do they do wrong and right, you know, when they're faced with one of those hundred people or multiples of those hundred people?
1: Yeah, it's super easy. People can tell whether you give a damn about them. They can tell. And how you behave towards them it shows it. It demonstrates it people are super sensitive to this and it's really easy to give a damn about people right it's really easy to do that you just make sure that, that Well, I think, is, it's, I think it's easy for people that aren't selfish
0: but there are a lot of people that are selfish that don't think about it
1: see here's the thing is that there was a decision that i made you can become very successful using and abusing every resource that's around you you know the vampire mentality right yeah, and then you'll die
0: lonely and unliked. exactly
1: exactly <laughs> and everybody will hate your guts yeah right okay and i think the key is that that you have to look for the triple bottom line okay like this is the most challenging thing to do and i and i would, would suggest that that for people that, that just use and abuse and uh, money is their only objective um, money is not money is just a tool self determination is wealth okay self determination is wealth money is a tool that we use to achieve self determination it's the points you know it's the it's the way that we it's the way that we count but it isn't actual wealth and so that's why when i look at how i treat people um i decided that i'm just gonna be nice to everybody because what goes around comes around it's not completely uh, uh, altruistic on my part i mean there's a there's a reason that i do it it's because you know payback's a bitch, okay and i'll tell you something if i have a business and i charge you ten dollars more for something than where you could have bought it somewhere else and you find that out then you're like well gee you know i got you know i, I paid too much over here i should Think better about that. I will. Um, I will go ahead and do more research, and you think nothing more of it. If uh, if I steal ten dollars from you, you'll remember my face for the rest of your life. You want to make enemies? Violate them. Violate their trust. Right? Not only will they tell their friends, they'll tell everybody else. Right? And so this has been a key for me, even though it's not been as financially rewarding to always um, uh, to pursue this uh, this path. I make it a point to be, to the degree that is I can, to put myself in other people's shoes. And uh, that served me well. It got me that job. It got me that project at that Hatch, right? Because, you know, who was I to show up out of NOAA to, to do this project? It was by virtue of the, the way that I had treated the person who invited me to do it. And how did I end up running that operating group there? I mean, you have to understand something. Hatch is an international engineering company of some regard okay? I'm not a professional engineer. I own and operate an engineering company. I'm not an engineer because business is about people, right? And so engineering is the medium through which we serve our clients. It's not the objective in of itself. You make money from customer service, right? That's what people pay for. Everything else is just a medium. And our medium is engineering and technology. And so, yeah, we do pay particular attention to the quality of that. But the most important thing is how is this helping the people that we're working with? Because if it's not helping them, and they don't want to help us, and they don't want to help the people they're working with. We walk away. I mean, there's lots of clients we won't do business with.
0: This concept of kind of being open and putting yourself in other people's shoes. You mentioned this idea of having a clear vision but being flexible. What do you mean by that? Because you you, you hear a lot of people, you know, like like the Musk's and the Bezos of the world, where it's like, or or even good example is Mark Zuckerberg, where he said, you know, giving them what they need, not what they want, right? And and you know, his idea is that We have this very clear vision and they may not know what they actually want yet. Yeah. So, how do you balance this, this desire to, you know, really be steadfast in your, your idea and your vision, but also be uh, flexible enough to be open and, and, you know, as you said, identify opportunities and see opportunities? Yeah. I think that the, the quotes
1: that you're hearing from these people are, are bull, absolute bull. I'll be honest. Not that, not that you're <laughs> providing me with inaccurate information. I think that they're having revisionist memory. Okay. I think Mark Zuckerberg said it the best a long time ago. He said, I need some way to connect people so that they can get, have sex easier, easier so that they, in university, they can hook up better. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's following, that's following a, a market, not making a market. Facebook was a, was a tool so people could hook up right? And he didn't know anything else, what was going to happen to it before then at all. You know, Bezos started selling books. He thought books would be great, right? People started adding stuff to his site. It's not because Jeff Bezos decided that people should add stuff to Amazon. It's because he had a great distribution network because he sold books. Pure leader used shipped filters all around the world, and all of a sudden, they realized their entire network could be useful as a, as a courier company. The suggestion that any of these CEOs had some sort of a vision that this was going to be the case and that they were going to drive to it relentlessly is nonsense it's nonsense they didn't know they just think that they knew now it's about being an
0: opportunist and having yeah. your eyes open and they, I mean, they obviously have done that quite well because if they steer the ships in the right direction
1: exactly they were directionally correct we wanted like look like at uh, facebook is the world's largest publisher yet employs no authors right i mean who would have thought of that right i mean that's that's kind of an unusual circumstance right and Amazon sells millions of products that they don't actually ship themselves.
0: How much of success in the business realm do you chalk up to luck? A
1: lot, a lot. See, here's the, the luck is made, right? So there's no such thing as chance for, for all intents or purposes. Um, I don't believe, I'm not fatalistic. I don't believe that things that happen is a byproduct of, of some preordained um, circumstance. But if you treat people really well, you work really hard. You're directionally correct. Okay, you maintain enough capital so that you do not scare people with the the, the thought that you're going to run out of money. You can do almost anything. You could be selling sawdust for a living and make a lot of money. It's about people. It's about you. It's about your integrity. It's about what is important. And then the medium through which you make money, it's almost not relevant. Everything else, it's really, you can pick anything. Do something you like doing, right? Something that at least you can, you know, you can convince yourself that you're good at, even if, you know, there's a bit of a bias there. But at the end of the day, um, it's a business about people. And you can't make bad people management, bad people organization, um, dishonesty, and and general um, abuse, use and abuse, zero-sum economics, you can't make that into a successful company. That will fail.
0: I couldn't agree more with you.
1: That that will fail. And so, you know, when you look at um, Facebook, um, they were giving away shares nonstop. The guys who were cleaning out the garbage cans uh, had some of the first shares in, in Facebook, right? Mark Zuckerberg was like, hey, I don't have any money, right? And so, um, how about I give you some shares? And turns out this person made about a million bucks per garbage can, you know? But those things are rare. I mean, we can't—that's survivor—that's survivor bias, right? You can't look at the the, the one success out of a hundred and say, well, you know, this is the way to go. You know, this is the the, the truth of the matter is that if in what you do you uh, treat the people around you the way that they should be treated, whether or not you're financially successful, you're successful. You can assure your success through this this means. And so it's not a—it's nothing other than um, than that. Just do it. Just don't don't screw people.
0: I love how we've spent almost half an hour uh, when I started this podcast discussing how I knew nothing about renewables and haven't spoken about renewables. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's always how it goes. So, Rob, you've touched on a lot of concepts that are vital to entrepreneurs and the people they employ. You know, It's just another reminder, no matter what the sector or industry, entrepreneurs have the same challenges, uh, and there are certain approaches that are key to the success of any business. And, and like you mentioned, Rob kindness and surrounding yourself with great mentors is is definitely, you know, part of that. Rob, I'd like to thank you for your time today. And uh, until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.